0: Hello, and welcome to Command Space, episode 21. My name is Mike Hurley, and today I am joined by the one and only Mr. Matthew Panzerino from The Next Web. Hi, Matthew. How are you doing?
1: Hi, Mike. How are you doing?
0: I'm very well, my man. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: So this is the first time we've had you on. You are a, a new guest to the show and to the network, so uh, it's great. It's always great to talk to new people. It's, it's always fun.
1: Yeah, cool. I, I, I definitely think it's a, um, it's important you know to maintain a sense of community and podcasting is a great way to do that as a little conversation goes a long way it doesn't quite match up to a chat you know no matter how many lines of text you send
0: yeah i think one of the things for me like what i love why i love doing this show um, is i get to talk to a lot of people you know that, that i respect and follow online but it, this gives a sense of personality a background personality that that a thousand tweets can't give
1: right right and it also gives you a sense of whether or not there's a disconnect between the online persona you see on Twitter and the person themselves because i find that sometimes it's it's funny because people feel a little bit more liberated via twitter and and they're very quiet and reserved in person or vice versa you know they they tweet seldomly but are very gregarious in person you know and then some people match up perfectly you know some people are like yeah this is so you're exactly who i thought you were you know and, the,
0: and also as well it's like you could be sitting and thinking about every tweet that you write, but in this conversation, you haven't got so much time to consider. Or it would be a very weird <laughs> podcast to listen to.
1: Right, right. Hold on, to about fifteen minutes. I'm going to compose the perfect 140 character response to what you just said. <laughs> exactly.
0: So yeah, as as uh, you are a new guest, something that I like to do with all of the new guests that we have on the show is to go uh, talk a bit about your sort of history and focus a little bit more on where you are now and how you've got to where you are. So. How long have you been at The Next Web? I mean, that's probably the thing that you're known most for, right? Uh,
1: Yeah, I've been there since April of 2011. So I'll be coming up on two years at the beginning of this uh, year coming up.
0: And what were you doing? Were you in – I mean, I personally have only found out about you through The Next Web. Were you writing online and stuff before that?
1: Um, Sort of. I had been writing for my own site it's um, so a small blog about the iPhone and kind of iDevice ecosystem. Um, and i had been working on that for about two years just on my own. Um, so I didn't really have a huge online presence or anything. I've been running my Twitter account and such, but didn't have a ton of followers or anything like that. So it's not surprising that most people know me from the Next Web.
0: You have a blog on Subtle called Robot Tuxedo. Was that the name of the blog before?
1: No, that isn't. Um, that is my current personal blog um my blog before was the iphone guru which was a, a an unfortunate name for a, a series of reasons which i came to understand throughout the process but it's sort of like a you know one of those experiences that you get when you, you decide that you're going to learn a new trade or or learn a new um craft it, you start maybe you know whittling wood and you you figure all the mistakes that you make the first turn through so that was sort of my mistake making machine you know i made mistakes with you know things like attribution and of course the name of the site (laughs) you know having somebody else's brand name in your site's name is never a fantastic idea i'm just gonna put it out there for anybody starting a blog if you're gonna start a blog about the iphone don't put iphone in the name because it limits you in a lot of ways like apple is you know, I was never big enough for Apple to even notice me, right? But let's say something crazy happens and your audience explodes. At some point, you're going to need to change that, which is why the guys at iMore, you know, ended up changing um, their name, and and the guys that um, the iPhone download blog, you know, I mean, it, it's in when the iPhone came out, everybody's so excited about it, and of course, the SEO juice is too too good to pass up for, you know, especially in such a new arena where all of these guys kind of rolled in and said hey we're going to start writing with the iphone we're excited about it it's interesting we're just going to put iphone right in the name so people know what we're all about you know yeah. and of course there was the awkward transition when the ipad came around and then all of a sudden everybody's like well we're the iphone ipad blog <laughs> you know <laughs> and uh and so anyhow it doesn't pay to put somebody else's trademark in your title um because that you're limited in things like you can't sign up for affiliate programs for itunes you know um apps and things like that because apple doesn't allow affiliates to have their trademark or their name you can't trademark your blog's name um you can't really copyright it you know so there's there's lots of protections you lose out on and opportunities you lose out on so that was one of my learning experiences in running that site obviously among many many others but um yeah it it was that's kind of what i was doing before tnw
0: i mean also like as you say about it limits you I mean if you think of iLounge they used to be called iPod Lounge imagine if they were still called iPod Lounge what would they write about
1: Exactly, exactly. So yeah, there's the limiting of your audience for too specific of a domain, uh, but there's also – and I think SEO works a lot differently now than it used to. Um, Just from my crude understandings of it, I'm no expert by any means, but obviously running your own site for two years, you kind of do a lot of reading and do a lot of experimentation, but – it's not. It doesn't work the way it it, it used to. And I mean, Google's updates to their algorithms focus much more on on links into your site and and stuff like that. So it's not really as important as it used to be uh, to have that kind of Google search juice, so to speak, which is where you would get a lot of your traffic if you didn't have a lot of links from other sites and and a lot of you know followers on on say Twitter or things like that but um it's not as important anymore so definitely shy away from that if you can but yeah so i started that uh in 2009 i think um and it, before that i'm saying i'm a lot but before that i was nobody i didn't really i didn't write anything online i had written a little bit for myself and kind of knew that i wanted to do that eventually but that's it. I just one day decided to start writing.
0: I mean, really? I mean, at the moment, your your current position, which you've held for, um, a, a little while now, you are the managing editor of the next web. So mm-hmm. kind of to, to only been doing this since April, 2011, I believe you said it, with those guys. That's quite a position to hold in such a short space of time.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a combination of factors there. We're obviously a very young company and, mm-hmm. um, you know the the maturity of uh the blogosphere as it stands you know which is only a few years old really um you know less than a less than uh, a de- less than a decade you know uh the real kind of blog you know atmosphere that we have now uh and many of the companies are young, but we are relatively young uh started in o eight you know TNW started was well, started in o eight um as an offshoot of the conference and it it definitely makes it easier for you know all of us to kind of fall into our roles more naturally because we you know are relatively young to it although some of the folks that are with tnw have extensive journalism backgrounds you know jamilla worked with bbc and you know they, there are other um other stories to be told here not just mine you know not all of us are kind of like me just kind of roughshod and kind of come into the place but um the youth of it in terms of time compresses a lot of the acceler- you know a lot that acceleration level through like okay what position can you hold okay you're good at finding news you know you're able to seek that out you have a good relationship with um contacts and people in the industry that can you know give you uh, a an insight onto a story, whether or not it's worth pursuing or not. So maybe you're, you know, you'd be good as a news editor in that position. And then maybe if you're able to kind of parse the idea that the site needs an overall voice and what that voice should be, and and how we should pursue that voice, um, maybe you know you can manage this uh, situation. You know, be an editorial manager and things like that. So I, I don't know if it's. Um, I don't know if it's a tenable situation. I think I'm doing an okay job, and and a, a, you know our site is growing significantly, and I always try to do an honest and and forthright job with what we're doing. But um, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are more qualified, right, and have a deeper background in it. But I think that one of the things about you know blogging and the way it works is that your work is out there, and it's very easy to spot whether or not you're being truthful and i don't mean in terms of facts i mean true to your philosophy true to your you know what you're trying to do with bringing your message and and how you deliver the news everybody gets the same same um news roughly so how do you present that do you present it as a moderate do you show both sides of the story you know so i think people are are very good at kind of sussing out whether somebody is you know full of it or not and i think that that truth machine kind of helps to keep everybody on the level, and, and people will quickly pick up on whether or not you know what you're doing, and take mm-hmm. off if if you don't, you know.
0: Indeed, I mean, I, I know I know a few editors um, with a couple of other technology sites, and one thing that I noticed about you is you write a lot more than than the average editor. Is that a choice? I mean, you you're a prolific writer. I mean, looking at the next web's next web's homepage, your name is all over it. Mhm. Is that a choice like you just really enjoy it?
1: It is a choice. I mean, we we definitely have far less staff than your typical publication, so part of it is necessity. Sometimes I'm needed, you know, to pick up stories. Um we employ 14 full-time writers. Mm-hmm. Um I believe that The Verge at last count employed 43 and Whoa, that's a, um, a, lot more a bunch I of hope. interns, you know. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's definitely a, an imbalance there, right? So we have to offset it by Taking on the workload. I mean, I know how how hard the guys at TNW work and gals at TNW work, and they they definitely pull their load and then some. You know, yeah. so we we have kind of a work ethic where nobody has any post counts. You know, we don't set any minimum word counts, minimum post counts, quotas. There is none of that. You know, we do kind of keep an eye on traffic and let people know how we're doing and how they're doing, you know, how their articles are doing, just if they ask or if they, you know, feel like they want to know. And of course we have, you know, regular progress reports just so everybody stays on track, but mm-hmm. it's definitely not an environment where we're, we're really hammering people to get page views and, and hammering them to, to have a, a minimum amount of posts on the site. Right. Yeah. So when you build an environment like that, it's it's really all about self motivation you know do you are you in it with us you know we're all in the trenches do you want to do this and if you do want to do this you will produce you know there's it's a natural thing you're gonna produce you're gonna want to produce i mean people are you know hungry to 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 write and to explain things and to you know Kind of balance the story if they feel it's it 's being improperly represented, whatever the case may be, but it 's that hunger that you know it kind of matters, so for me, I have that you know it 's natural I, I I want to write I feel there's some stories worth writing that aren 't being written and i 'll write those sometimes they 'll feel that the story's you know not being represented correctly or I if I'm writing something that I know everybody else is going to write, you know, an embargoed blog post uh, about an app launch, for for instance, then I'll try to come at it from a different angle. You know, my my job, I feel, is to tell people stories, and instead of you know hooking something on a product launch and having that formula where these are the features, this is what it does, here's screenshots, here's the download link, instead, look into it. Who are the people behind this app? They built this app for a reason. Why did they build it? What motivated them to build it? What in their life ended, you know brought them to this point? Was it purely money? If so, that's still an interesting story to me. You know, it it how do you build an app purely for money yet still make it good? You know, how do you um, build an app out of passion but make it you know actually viable as a business? I mean there are so many angles to a story that you can take that I think that is being lost in this atmosphere of you know news hook first like uh, it, people often call you know um something that that's happening in the news world a peg right so you're going to peg something um or peg a story on on something like uh, an app release and that's great but you can't always use a a peg as a crutch you know it can't be oh there's an app update and and that's what this blog post is going to be about. Instead, there's an app update, but look at the motivations for this update. They removed this feature. Why did this feature go away? You know, and that that human context I think is what we try to bring to it. So I have a passion for that. I want to do that. And yes, it is a constant conscious decision for me to write more because of that because I couldn't see not writing. Now, I don't write nearly as much now as I wish I could. Because I do spend a lot of that time you know, managing, right, yeah. <laughs> theoretically. But um, I definitely like to write, and I find it very easy to write. You know, It's not a chore for me. It's not a task for mm-hmm. me. So mainly it's a matter of time management. So this the time spent managing obviously is not time spent writing. And in the end, if uh, we get larger, I'd imagine that my time spent writing will go down just naturally because sometimes the news – you know, just pure news can be handled by just about anybody who's on hand, and if we have more writers on hand, and of course I'll have to handle less of that, and maybe have more time to pursue you know a little bit longer form stuff, you know things that that I believe is um, st- I believe is still lacking in T and W's coverage uh, that I would like to see more of. And, um yeah, so it, it'll be kind of a natural thing. So yeah, it's kind of a twofold thing. Yes, I still have a passion for it. It's a conscious decision to do it. And then also, we are very small. So I have to pitch in just like everybody else.
0: I'm pretty sure the, uh, the long form posts are called the teachy posts, right? It's, I'm sure that's what you mean.
1: Um, Teachy posts, yeah, Federica. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's <laughs> prolific. Uh, he's he's very very good at what he does, and um, I I really enjoy reading reading his stuff because he um he's very thoughtful. Um, never takes a, this shortcut. You know, it always is is um, you know drills down to the end and and kind of um puts all of his thought press process in his posts, which I think is it's unique. I don't think a lot of people are doing it, so I think there's definitely an opportunity for him, which is really cool.
0: Did. Now, I've got the first of our uh, questions from our listeners this is from at info overloaded um, what did you study in college? Like, do you, do you have a background that led to writing? Uh,
1: you know I studied photography actually I, I um, got about nine tenths of the way to a photography degree um, never finished it because I realized that because I was going to college for photography right at the time the digital switchover was happening so as that was going on, I was learning traditional darkroom processes, um, you know, black and white processing, color processing, um, you know, Sibachrome and, uh, you know, uh, gelatin silver stuff. Just all of the the older raw processes, I can hand process, process negatives and hand process positives and, um, you know, print just about anything and, and burn and dodge in the darkroom and, uh, you know, etc. And I, I know I can operate. Literally any camera on the planet, and I can manually expose without a light meter. I mean, all of those kind of craft things. I was very fortunate to learn from good teachers in high school, and then also um, great professors at my local city college. So I didn't I didn't go to like a major college; just went to a city college. But thankfully, they're amazing photographers, and I learned a lot from them. So I I was into that arena, and um, you know, pursuing that and. I was running a small photography business or began running a small photography business of my own, um, which I ran for many years from about 1998 when I graduated high school um, at a very minor level up to uh, about 2010 or – 2000, yeah, 2009, 2010 when I started writing the site a lot more, uh, my own site. So yeah. kind of had a background in photography, um, always loved it. Really, and you know, enjoyed it to begin with when I was in high school, and then uh, built it into a, a substantial, but not you know, earth-shattering business on my own. Uh, so my my small business was enough for me to you know have a decent amount of income, but not enough for, to provide you know extensive uh, wealth or anything. But I did a lot of weddings and portraits and commercial photography, um, that sort of thing. Cars and buildings and remodels and just you know. All that kind of stuff, so kind of the the breadth uh the breadth of it, but weddings are pretty much in my physical area, which is um, california and the San Joaquin valley uh, is pretty much kind of the the bread and butter of photographers you know weddings are you can make a decent living shooting weddings you can you know earn a you know hundred grand couple hundred grand a year if you're really really good and really prolific you know but uh i wasn't at that level by any means but it's it was the only avenue and i kind of realized at some point that i didn't want to spend every weekend shooting weddings Mm -hmm. there is a certain level of stress involved in weddings which doesn't really affect me because i'm i'm not i'm not affected by stress almost at all um out, out of at a high level i'm sure my body takes it you know you you get the aching back and stuff like that so i'm sure it happens there it just doesn't happen in my brain i don't get flustered it doesn't happen to me um so it was always it was always okay for me i could take that but it is a constant level of pressure you know to get things right the first time because obviously weddings are you know one time only thing so it is definitely not easy um it got It got somewhat easier when digital rolled around. You know, shooting weddings on film is an altogether more stressful affair. But it got somewhat easier when digital rolled around. But it's still the same basic principles. And the fact that you're shooting digital doesn't—it means you can shoot more, but that doesn't mean you can shoot better. Um, And and then in the end, I found that I wasn't—I wasn't wanting to do that for the rest of my life. And it was killing my joy of photography as a hobby because you don't want to do it when you do it every weekend or, you know, in the mornings, and the evening, before and after your day job, quote unquote, for work still, it kills your joy of it as a hobby. So I was losing any interest I had in shooting casually or or for quote unquote fun, uh, which I didn't like either. Um, But so that's that's kind of my background. I was in photography. And then right out of high school, I got a job in retail um, at a it's kind of like uh, imagine a best buy but independently owned right um so home theater we we sold stuff from like a couple hundred dollar receivers up to thirty thousand dollar meridian home theater systems uh and then also cameras you know film cameras and then of course then digital cameras and that sort of thing um and then other home electronics and computers and that sort of thing but i kind of got into it because i'm like hey a camera store you know <laughs> can work there and do the photography thing and get to play with new cameras and all that stuff. Um, so I kind of got working in that and it ended up that I was pretty good at sales, um, which if you're good at sales, I, I, it's kind of like the modern day, you know, teach a man to fish scenario. Because if you're good at sales, you can work in a lot of industries. You know, if you can sell things, you can sell just about anything, right? You can work, it doesn't really matter.
0: Like you can work in practically any industry these days if you have sales experience.
1: Right, exactly, and it's definitely not – I don't think that it's it's a profession that deserves as much malignance as is attributed to it sometimes, but it definitely promotes a certain kind of thinking, especially sales on commission. It's a corrupting influence because your job as a salesperson should be to um, – your job as a salesperson should be to help the person – Get the best product for them, whether that be you know a service or a physical product uh, that that breeds satisfaction, right? Because then the next time they have to purchase a similar thing or do something you know that's in a kind of the same vein, you want them to come back to you. Mm -hmm. You know, you want them to feel like, hey, this is neat. This is something that I can. uh, This is someone I can come back to and trust, and that's very very difficult. Uh, to, um, it's very difficult to balance that with the demands of like a commission-oriented sales environment. And I worked in commission sales for like six years, seven years, and I found it taking a toll on me. You know, kind of making me perhaps making my personality change, and I didn't like that feeling. I didn't like. What it was doing to me, mm-hmm. so I ended up um, changing over to a smaller family owned business, also a camera shop um, non commission and like liked it there for a long time. but once again, you kind of as you could do sales anywhere, you get kind of comfortable and so I started working in retail as I you know graduated from high school just as was like oh i 'm going to do my photography business and i 'm going to work in retail for a while until I get off the ground and then thirteen years later, I was like, "Oh." I'm still in retail. <laughs> what happened here? What <laughs> happened? And you know, I had gotten married, um, you know, to my lovely wife, and have a home and a car, and etc. And so you have these financial obligations, and obviously you're like, hey, this sales thing pays okay, and I'm comfortable, etc. But then you have to go, you know, do some evaluation and say, well, I'm not happy. Really, I'm happy in my home life, but I'm not happy in my work life and is this the legacy I want? Is this what I want to do? And I guess everybody sort of has that epiphany at some point. It came to me perhaps a little bit later than some people, but you know, not later than others. You know, others do one thing for a very long time and then realize, hey, you know, I, I kinda want to do something different. And it's obviously as time goes on, it's much harder. Especially once you build a family and a life, it becomes a little more difficult, you know, to make those changes. But I woke up one day and realized that I didn't want to do it anymore. I was not happy with photography as a business simply because of how I felt about it um, philosophically. Not in not in terms of anybody else. Obviously, there are great photographers out there making a, a wonderful business, and if you can, it's great. Um, and then I also was definitely not happy you know, doing retail, even though I liked my coworkers and liked my employer. You know, they were all great, which I was in a fortunate position there. I just knew I didn't want to continue doing it forever um so i started the iphone guru um one night one day i told my wife hey i'm gonna i'm gonna try this writing thing and she's like okay whatever you want to do you know um and i had always i'd always kind of had an affinity for reading which i think is kind of a hallmark for writers if if you read a writer that you really like and that you enjoy uh typically you'll find that they they read a lot they read everything you know i mean doesn't matter what it is, they read. Because anything you read informs your writing, um, both in style and also in information and knowledge and context. Um, it just helps. So when I was growing up, my parents decided not to have a television in the house, they didn't want it. And my dad grew up. Watching his dad fall asleep in front of the TV and, you know, not have that communication with him as much as he wanted to. Uh, Later on in life, he did, and and it was great. You know, when my grandfather passed, they had a good relationship. But Mm -hmm. when he was young, he grew up with that. You know, he would – his dad would work all day. He's very, you know, hard worker. He'd work all day, come home, you know, sit in the chair, fall asleep in front of the TV. And he didn't want that to happen in our household. So we didn't have a television – I didn't have a television until I was like 17, 18. Wow. and so instead, I read. you know, I read books and uh, anything I' get my hands on, comic books and books and magazines and anything. I just read. Um, so I, I, that kind of thing just happened naturally. you know I, I didn't think anything of it because my parents kind of made the decision, but I was much, I was grateful for it later, because it definitely, I think helped. I don't think I'm really any smarter than anybody, but I think that reading a lot definitely helped me you know i think that's if anything is my edge that's my edge that you know i do read i still try to read prolifically and i kind of was reading when everybody else was watching tv you know and not that there's not a cultural context that i lost because there is you know people will reference tv stuff and i'm like i have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> <What>? but <laughs> right right but so i'm not saying it's a good or bad thing i'm just saying that's what shaped me you know and um so, anyhow, I, I ended up reading a lot. And so I had always read a lot and, and kind of dabbled in writing here and there, but never really written anything outside of school, you know, just stuff for school. And um, one day I woke up and said, Hey, I want to do something different. And I, of course, had read a lot of tech blogs and, and continued to do so because I'm a fan of tech. Um, and then ended up. Um, you know, kind of just saying, hey, well, I want to write about tech. I do like I've been using Apple products for for years, um, and you know, including Macs and and everything else. But uh, I said, you know, I kind of want to write about something. And obviously, I had purchased an iPhone like day one, and I was very excited about it, kind of very attached to it, and I wanted to, you know, write something about that arena. So I started writing, and uh, I I got a. I usually get up about four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. Write for a couple hours, then go to work, um, you know, work at, at uh, my job, and then come home, uh, have dinner, uh, put my wife to bed, and then write for another two, three hours or so. And that's kind of how I built the site for about two years. And then um, you know, kind of in between, whenever I found time, I would, I would update and write and update. And I tried to post about three to four posts a day uh, for about two years just to kind of like boot camp. I knew that if I was going to write, I needed to write you know and there's no there's no substitute it when you're trying to build a writing ability for writing just start writing and keep writing and write some more and then write some more and then obviously editorial comes harder you know the the ability to edit yourself and to to cull ideas that are great but are not the focus of your story and things like that then that's harder to build but you get advice, and you read people, and you read things about editing, and you know you kind of start to understand why things that you're writing are working or not working. So basically, I just did that for two years, and then um, uh, TnW put out a call for writers, and I responded to the tweet. It was a tweet that they sent out, and I responded, and um, you know, kind of auditioned, and here I am.
0: The rest is history, as they say.
1: <laughs> right. So <laughs> the rest is very recent history. <laughs>
0: So I've got another another question from from a listener. This is at Phoneboy, um, and they ask, "How does the next web attempt to differentiate itself from other sites?"
1: Um, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people doing what we do, uh, and some of them are doing a very very good job of it. Um, if I had to sum it up in one in one phrase, it's that we try to provide a human context for every story. Yeah. So if we don't have contextual information in the story, I will send people back into the mines to find it you know, before we move forward or before we finish reporting on a story. Because the context of a story is what really brings about a relationship with a reader. Because you're not… If if all of us were just publishing pure news, reporting on news, summarizing a company blog post, um, listing the new features of an app, uh, that sort of thing, it would all be very much the same. Which I think, unfortunately, it is a lot of the times, and that's fine because it does provide the reader with a certain service. You know, you're you may be summarizing things, making them shorter, or listing the app's features in a place where they will come across it. And go oh, okay I'm gonna update that app or I'm gonna grab this app because it, the features sound cool and that's cool that is a service and it, you know I'm not decrying anybody who does that sort of thing purely but I don't believe that it builds a lasting readership because they could get it anywhere so when you have a situation like you're focused on scoops which is you know a small nugget of information that makes for a good headline and then you you put it into A post body and you say, you know, Apple's releasing a new iMac and this is its model number, right? That's great. That's cool. That's a scoop. That's, you know, hey, awesome. You were able to dig up information and you're hopefully (laughs) Mm – you took the time to validate that information or vet the source and make sure that obviously the, the information is correct. Um, and then you published it, and, and that's really cool. And it will drive some traffic, right? So you'll get a burst of people clicking on that link. Um, it may even drive some backlinks where people are kind enough to link back to you and go, hey, these are the people that originally found it, which we always try to do. We're, we're usually very vigilant about that. What's one of our by, our kind of bylines. But, um it, that del- that delivers a spike of traffic and it delivers interest, but it doesn't build a lasting readership. You don't get into a situation where that person is going to come back to you time after time and read the things that you write. Really read the things that you write or the things that appear on your site because all they're going to do is find the next scoop. And it doesn't matter where it is. It's either on your site or somebody else gets it next time. You know, and that kind of jumping around is kind of okay because it's part of the dissenting opinions thing, right? Like you, you need to have different angles on a story, so you can't just follow one tech blog. You're only going to get one kind of version of a story, but it, it doesn't end up building that. Uh, it sort of builds up like a plaque, a sort of a good kind of plaque where people will read a story, get a bit of contextual information that you provide them. Say this is the new, you know, model number that we discovered. But here's why it's important. Here's what we believe is coming. Here's why you should care about this, you as a human being, right? Hmm. And you provide them with that contextual information and you make sure that they come away from that post just a little bit smarter because people love to be smarter. They love to feel like they've learned something, that, that they just were able to increase their knowledge a little bit. And this is a, a, a basic human thing. This is not any high level, you know, tech mumbo jumbo. Every human being loves to feel a little bit smarter every day, you know, whether they realize it or not. You know, whether it's like who's sleeping with who or, you know, Who who's pregnant or whatever celebrity did what? That's still a little bit of knowledge, and that way, when their friend says something like, "I like that new Katy Perry single," they're like, "Oh, did you hear Katy Perry's engaged?" Right? That's people love to do that. They love to be the person with the knowledge, with the understanding, and you know, sometimes they love to impart that to other people and feel like they know more, and that's great. But that's a core human trait. All of us love to do that. So if you can provide for someone. Contextual information that makes them feel a little bit smarter and gives them the bigger picture, even if it's the picture is just slightly bigger, then that will build up in their mind, and they will associate you and your site, hopefully, you know that you're, or the publication you're writing for with that feeling. And the next time they see a link or a story that that someone shares or or we post on their Twitter feed or something like that, they'll be more inclined to click on it because they know that they're going to get that feeling again that their click isn't going to be wasted or more importantly that their time isn't going to be wasted mm-hmm. because that's really the limiting factor that's the limited resource that we're all mining is the is people's time you know we have x million readers and those x million readers only have 24 hours and of those 24 hours they only spend you know 10% or whatever, 20% or 30% looking at the internet. And of that time, only X% percent is spent lo- actually looking at tech news. And then of that percent, you know, so on and so forth, right? So you your job is to make sure that they feel that investing that percentage of time in your site is worth it. And to do that, you provide them with human context, make them feel smarter, and don't Waste their time, and that I think is basically how we try to operate. And sometimes we're successful. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're not as successful because we don't have the resources yet. But we're getting there, and we want to get there. So that's the goal we're working towards, regardless of whether or not we happen to achieve it uh, today, or tomorrow, or the next day.
0: Cool. So where have we goal. It's a good thing, good thing to aim for. Um, I just want to take a, a very quick break to uh, thank our sponsor for this episode, but I have um, lots more that I want to sp- speak to you about, Matthew, so I'm not letting you go anywhere just yet. So um, I want to thank Squarespace.com who who provide you with everything you need to make an amazing website. Squarespace have been a a long-time sponsor of this show and of the network and uh, you should support them for supporting us if you haven't already and let me tell you why. Squarespace provides you with a fully hosted, completely managed environment that allows you to create and maintain your home online, whether that be a blog portfolio, if you're a a photographer like Matthew, or um, you want to create a site for your business. Squarespace can give you all the tools that you need. It doesn't matter how experienced you are when it comes to building websites, you can put something together in minutes that will look fantastic without having to worry about any of the fiddly bits like hosting, scaling or integration with social services like Twitter and Facebook. Squarespace also give beautiful templates. Um, They're really clean, let your content do all of the talking, and they feature responsive web design too, so it doesn't matter what device people are looking at your uh, Squarespace 6 site with, it's always going to look fantastic because they do some clever stuff behind the scenes to make sure that your content and um, the layout of your site formats fantastically to fit the uh, screen size that's coming. Squarespace have a page building engine called Layout Engine. Um, it allows you to create custom layouts for your pages in seconds. You can add blocks of content such as photos, videos, text, social media content and loads more to make your site look exactly the way that you want. I think you should go and try all of this out for yourself. And I can give you a free, no obligation trial so you can do that. You don't need to enter a credit card or anything. You just put in a, a username, password and an email address. It's as simple as that. Just go to... Squarespace.com forward slash 70 decibels and you can start your free trial. Squarespace then starts at $10 a month for their standard plan and $20 a month for the unlimited plan once the trial is over if you want to sign up for an account. But if you sign up up front for one year, so you pay up front, you'll get 20% off that monthly price overall. And if you sign up front for two years, you'll get 25% off that as well. So you can get some great discounts there if you you sign up for a, a longer period of time. If you do make the decision to purchase, um, I've also got an offer code that will give you an additional 10% off whatever your first purchase is, whether it's one of the annual plans or a monthly plan. Just use the offer code 70 decibels 12 at 70-D-E-C-I-B-E-L-S-12, and you'll get an additional 10% off. So go check out Squarespace, everything you need to make an amazing website. So, Matthew, thank you for still being here.
1: Sure. Yeah, I figured I'd stick around.
0: <laughs> so I want to talk um, a little bit about sources. Um, I know this is something that is becoming increasingly important um, these days in the blogging world or the technology journalism world, um, because you know sources can can lead to to breaking news stories or to have exclusives, which can be important. And we'll t- we're going to talk about exclusives as well in a bit, but I mean sort of obviously without revealing too much of course do you have sources that you you consider to be reliable that that, that give you some information
1: uh, yeah sure I mean the sometimes the the sources themselves aren't they're not as important as um, you know how you I guess that I'll, I'll rephrase it's important to have people that you have a personal relationship with that can help you to vet information regardless of whether or not that's information that they gave you. Right. So sometimes you'll get information from a source and hey, this is a hot item and you know this is very interesting, but it's helpful to have people and when I when I say source, source encompasses a lot of things because sometimes I'm friends with people, with developers, friends with just people in the industry, you know, friends with friends <laughs> that <laughs> are able to help me provide, you know, kind of a just a, a basic level of is this thing accurate or not? And sometimes they are able to say plainly yes or no. Sometimes they're unable to tell me, and I respect that, but they can give me an idea. And then sometimes um, they are – you know they're they're the source of the of the information themselves, but when you're given a piece of information like that, it's important obviously that you know whether or not the source is accurate, whether or not it's trustworthy and when you don't know, it's your obligation to vet that information against other people, whether they're sources or friends or whatever um in the tech industry, it's really weird because Obviously, people that work at companies, some of them are willing to share information for a variety of reasons. And it becomes very difficult to tell at times, unless it's somebody who is a friend or who is very trusted, what their motivations are for sharing that information. Right. So mm-hmm. let's say you have somebody at a company. I'm just going to name a random company. Let's say LinkedIn, right? <laughs> and there's something going on at LinkedIn. And one of their programmers forwards you a piece of information, say an internal memo, right? Mm -hmm. Why do they do that? You know that's that's an important question, and I don't think it gets asked enough. Let's say a guy, a programmer at LinkedIn, forwards me a juicy memo that says we're going to um, discontinue um, any Twitter profiles. Any Twitter profile connections or buttons, because of the thing that Twitter did um, with uh, disallowing streams of tweets on LinkedIn, right? So they, this company wide memo goes out. Twitter, we've been talking to Twitter. You know, talks have failed. Uh, we need to remove all Twitter buttons and Twitter links and blah 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 blah. Right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's something that's you know it's fairly juicy. If LinkedIn did that today, it would be a big news item. You know, it probably kind of hit most of the blogs. If you were the first to the story, you would get a lot of backlinks. People would be sharing your story. That's worth a lot of traffic. And of course, if you can contextualize the information and make it a nice story, that's a good, solid story. But you also have to ask yourself, what's the motivation for this source, this programmer, you know, this coder, designer, whoever they are, for for forwarding me this, this link? Let's say, for instance... That they are not happy about uh, Twitter's policies in general. You know, they're they're down on the way that Twitter has shifted its attitude towards third party developers. They don't like this new product that Twitter is building. Um, which it is not the case of me. I'm not I'm not necessarily uh, negative, Nancy, about what they're trying to do. I don't like the fact that they couldn't find a way to do it with more support for developers, but that's just a personal feeling. And, um, you know, life moves on, and I think that Twitter is building some cool stuff. So it, it's not, not something you got to give up on. But what if this guy feels that way? What if he feels very burnt by it because he has a close friend who was a Twitter developer and got really, really screwed by their rule changes? And when he sees this thing come across his desk, he shares it because it puts Twitter paints Twitter in their worst possible light. So you go – on one hand, you go, well, who cares why he shared it? The facts are the facts in the email, right? But maybe they're not. Maybe that was an email sent, and then there was a follow-up email that says, we're just removing these buttons because we're replacing them with new buttons. Right? <laughs> right, right. right yeah. Now you only have part of the story, and you have part of the story that's been colored by this person's personal feelings and you know, their, their disgruntlement over an issue so you you end up with a complex situation here and that's the kind of morass you get into when you only have one source for an information or p- for a piece of information and you can't confirm it i mean this is journalism 101 right you know you need two sources you need to be able to vet the information correctly and if it's a single source you better really really better know what's going on there you better have some personal information that allows you to corroborate that right so that's not done a lot. That is not done a lot. I can tell you for a fact that a lot of sources – or a lot of stories being published by tech blogs are single-source stories. That's kind of what journalists hate about blogs is that they don't really have to play by those rules. I think they should you know, if, if at all possible because it makes them more trustworthy. There's a reason that exists. I mean that's in the Bible. You know what I mean? And yeah. I'm not talking about some journalism bible. It's in the literal Bible that you need two sources for a piece of information, <laughs> two witnesses, right, to bring a matter before the court. And that's that's something that is, you know, kind of it, there's a reason for it because personal one person's perspective is never usually enough to tell the whole story. So it is very very difficult with the pressures of speed and the pressures of scoops and how exclusive your information is and how nobody else has this story and you're going to get some sort of reputation or cachet either you personally or or the site by publishing this information first when nobody else has it because we're kind of in this culture which is obsessed with firsts and and with information exclusive information but the it needs to be leavened at the whole time by thinking in the long term. And I think that's really at the root of it. It's not about people not vetting their sources right. It's not really about people winging it and posting on one source to just kick the hornet's nest and see what's going on, which I know happens a lot. Um, Because they'll get response, you know, if the story gains traction, they'll get a response from a company that was unresponsive because they have to now. You know, the hand has been forced. But it's not really about that. What it's about is people lose perspective Overall, they lose the the fact that this is one story in a relatively on a relatively small you know thing, a relatively small feature uh, on a company that releases hundreds a year, and it, six months from now, nobody's going to remember. You know, th- six months from now, your your perspective on this thing might be completely different. But tech blogging is so hyper accelerated the The whole industry is so hyper accelerated that it compresses that feeling, and people lose that perspective of how does this fit into the long stream of things this company's been around for ten years this is something that happens now the company's going to be around for another ten years why what is the how does this fit into the long thing and is it worth reporting on? Is it worth risking your reputation on? Is it worth perhaps revealing a source's um, you know uh, revealing a source at the company and, and burning those bridges or hurting their career is it worth any of this Is it worth those costs to report on something that is in the end insignificant or may not be correct and that I think is the perspective a lot of people lose. so the old adage i, I know it's it 's kind of old hat to say this now, and obviously Steve Jobs made it very famous, but we are just as proud of the stuff that we don 't publish. As the stuff that we do because we get a lot of information. Some of it sounds probably like it's pretty accurate, and it might be true. And we follow up on those, and we vet those, and we, we try to make sure that it is accurate and that we're not publishing something incorrect. But we also get a lot of other stuff that could very well be true, and it's very salacious, and it's very interesting, and it could probably generate a decent amount of traffic. But we can't verify it, so we don't publish it. You know, maybe we tuck it away, right? We add that to our own personal context in our brains and say, Okay, well and this is interesting that this person said that. I can't verify it, but you know, the next person that says it to you, you're like, Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> That's two people now that have said this to me. Yeah. Let me try and corroborate this, you know. And I, I just I mean, obviously a lot of this if, if somebody's gone to journalism school or, or is a journalist, they're gonna they're gonna be rolling their eyes to this whole section because they're like, of course, that's what you do. But I think that tech blogging, because of the way it kind of has organically grown up, it sometimes doesn't adhere to those rules. And sometimes it's to its detriment, you know?
0: So you mentioned um, like the idea of being first and the exclusive. And I want to try and understand for you sort of how important it can be. I mean, I know that there is a, there is a, a thing where you know to have an exclusive story, I'm sure, is is big and it's important for a for a tech news publication. But like, it, without you know, going into to traffic numbers, like sort of back of the the envelope sort of math, you know, maybe percentage wise or magnitude wise, what sort of traffic w- would you see? Would you likely expect if you are if you have an exclusive, or if you're just reporting on somebody else's exclusive?
1: Um. It just depends because <clears throat> exclusives are only exclusives for about a minute and a half Yeah. in our industry. So I, we're not a fan of the whole exclusive thing. Uh, if something is exclusive, people will know. We don't use exclusive in our titles. We no. don't ship things as exclusives and scream at, at the top of our lungs. <laughs> you know, if, if it's information that hasn't been elsewhere, the industry moves quick enough and it's fast enough to where people will know. So we just publish our stories as we see fit. Obviously we try to make the the titles as enticing for people as possible without being inaccurate, but they have to I mean they are the calling card of your article, right? They are the the thing that sets the tone for the article. Um you know that sets your your kind of mission statement, but they're also uh, in the end a an invitation to click. And so uh, you want to make those titles well written and enticing and Information full to some degree sometimes, um, so that people will visit them, but you also want them to be accurate. But putting exclusive at the beginning of your title in our industry, at least the people that I respect and and, you know kind of uh follow, is the you know the equivalent of uh, just unzipping your pants and dropping them to get attention. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, I mean. If if something comes down from on high uh, here that you know we have to put start putting exclusives in front of titles maybe I'll have to do that but uh, at the moment I'm the person that decides that and no we don't do that and we never really have though you know that's never never really been our thing and we have at times said stuff. Um, you know, or or done stuff like that, but we've never felt really great about it and we have kind of generated a policy recently where we don't we just don't do that. Because in the end it's not exclusive for more than a few minutes. You know, it it's uh it's nice to be first and to be the only source for information and that could be really helpful on a certain beat. Right? Like uh for instance Kara Swisher at All Things D has made a you know good career, a long career out of um business reporting and she has good sources. And she you know, takes that information from those sources and uh, produces blog posts and, and articles on, uh, out of them. Um, but the information that she produces is first for a few minutes. And then somebody else will take that information and perhaps write a uh, – hopefully it's not just a rewrite <laughs> of that information. It's adding some sort of context and information. Um, we often don't write about – uh, certain stories because we don't feel we have anything to add. Um, you know, it, the story exists in the blogosphere, and that's it. You know, it, I'm sure our readers will read it at some point. If we don't have anything to add, we're not going to write it. Um, we're working on ways to help share good content from other sites. Uh, we don't. We're not really super hot on the way link blogs do it right now. Um, As far as for us, I mean, I'm sure it works well for other people, and nothing against link blogs at all. You know, they have their own thing, but we need to come up with a solution that works well for us. You know, to help drive traffic to other sites because we want to be that. We want to be someone who helps deliver traffic to sites to help them grow and help them thrive. um, That we feel are producing great content, or perhaps get a really great scoop that just nail it so well. We have nothing to add, and it's like, hey, you know. They, they got this really cool story. go check it out because um, we have no problem with that. We don't think that it's a mutually exclusive situation you know um, but in the end, the exclusive thing is is silly because anything is only exclusive on the internet for moments and yeah. then it's not exclusive anymore um, it's nice to have if people are and by by people i mean other tech blogs are um Honest enough to link you because backlinks always help it helps in Google rankings, it helps in traffic um, it does give you a nice boost uh, if they don't link you, if they you know link to the tech meme cluster instead or dance around linking you by linking to secondary you know reportings of your story, you notice it's noticeable you know they don't they they're not fooling anybody, and it's kind of silly you know we try to link early to our sources, you know, p- uh, pieces, uh, places that we're retrieving information from or, or we're quoting information from, we try to link early and plainly so people can click on it if they feel like it. Because if they don't want to read what we have to write, we're not going to make them stick around by putting it at the bottom of the post and, or hiding a link. They're just going to scroll to the bottom and click on it. So we put it right up front, like, look, I got something to say about this story, that somebody else broke exclusively a few minutes ago. And stick around and read it if you want. But if not, here's the story. You know, by all means, click on it and go because it's not – You know, I don't want to force you to stay. But if you have confidence in our ability to parse information and deliver it plainly and concisely and to help you understand it, then read on, you know? Well, we're going to give it to you straight, how we feel you know, it is. So the whole thing about exclusive stories is that if you're not the person to deliver the story so well, contextual information, solid sources, um, vetting, deliver it, get it out with a great title, with good solid copy, and not to waste anybody's time, then it really doesn't matter. So it's it's – The kind of thing where if your story is a quote-unquote scoop or exclusive, then it's going to drive a ton of traffic because people are going to link to it. They're going to refer to it as the story of record for the item. So being first is very, very important sometimes because you end up with a scenario where it's going to drive a lot of traffic. But you have to make sure that once they get there, you're not wasting their time. So it's a constant Tension. It's a balance between being first to the story and delivering value. And you're, that's a, trust me, it's a very difficult thing to think about and to worry about. Every day we think about it. Every day. You know, in our, in our back channel, we are talking about uh, what we can do better on a story so that we're not producing hits off of a link and then people get there and their time is wasted. Um, because we're we're first to it, but it's not providing any value. And that is a constant tension. It's a constant battle. And anybody that says they don't battle with that in the modern tech industry or tech blogging industry, You know, either they have a very unique model that does not depend on timing, which is fine. That's great if you can find that. Or they're lying because <laughs> it's a very, very difficult problem. And all of us... Anybody with a with who's conscientious about their their work in tech blogging worries about it regularly. Now, if you're in a position to where you can link out to stuff quickly and then think about it and then write up a take on it, fantastic. That's great. But sometimes, some publications, a large amount of their reader base wants information as quickly as possible. So you have to think about how do you approach it. Are we going to produce a, sh- a short, concise posts that post that gives our quote-unquote exclusive scoop, right, um, that delivers that, gets it out there quickly so people can read it, and then follow up with a post after we've had some time to think about it and analyze it, you know, and then you deliver the contextual post afterwards. Like that's been our approach a lot. We get the hard news out. Uh, you know, especially if it's a, a breaking piece of news that we feel is going to be picked up by other publications. We're going to get the hard news out. We're going to deliver you know some basic context and some value to our reader, and then we're going to think about it and then deliver a thoughtful post on you know why this information is important or what the what the bigger picture is. And sometimes it's it's um it's difficult to restrain yourself sometimes it's not just not worth posting uh very quickly because you don't have all the context and so that's where you end up with what they call process journalism where you know a story gets published and then updated 16 times because the situation is constantly changing now in the case of a natural disaster or something like that obviously the situation is going to change and it's important to get the story out quickly and then you can continue to update uh, I mean, I, I think that this has kind of grown out of places like Reddit and stuff like that, where you end up with, you know, a, a well upvoted story, and you look in the comments of that and the story unfolds, right? That's a form of process journalism, whether those people realize they're participating in it or not. And that kind of thing, it's it just, it is what it is. And you, what you have to do is make sure that you're honoring the reader at all times so if you break an exclusive story and you have very you have information but you don't have you know a very extensive blog post that's okay you know it's all right to to get a small nugget of information out there because that's kind of what blogging is it's it's a little less formal. It's a little bit more about, hey, look, this is accurate. This is vetted. I don't have a lot of information on it now, but this is what it is. It's very interesting, and we'll follow up with more. I don't have any problem with that. And I think that the, as long as you're honest with the reader, I don't think there's any problem with it either. It's just a matter of when, you're, when it feels cheap, when it feels like you're not honoring the reader, that you're not giving them value, that I think it becomes a problem.
0: So I've got, a, I've got a question from, um, at duckzilla on Twitter, which is an awesome Twitter username. Um, what apps do you have in your iPhone doc? Uh,
1: my doc, my doc is currently, um, my phone, Sparrow, Safari, and Tweetbot.
0: Still using Sparrow.
1: Still using Sparrow. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just I find that it's uh, still one of the best mail experiences out there. Um, it 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 does what I want it to well, which is allows me to um, kind of uh, organize and call. I, I think I wrote this in my review of Sparrow back when I did it, but um, it was nice because it um, it got the concept that what you're doing on your mobile device is not. Um, it's not going through your mail and crafting mail and uh, sifting mail. What you're doing is re- really organizing mail. Like you're you're telling it you're a part of what I want to do now, or you're not. You know, sort of action plan. And it got that mobile mail experience very, very right. Uh, whereas on the desktop, you're going to be tagging or shifting things or, you know, moving things around or replying to long threads or uh, forwarding, you know, uh, various emails or uh, quoting and pasting and doing, you know, whatever you normally do in mail on, on a desktop. But on a mobile, it's really just about organizing. You're, you're going through. You're filtering your mail. You're flicking it around this way out of your site or into your site, and that's it. And that's what it's all about. And so I thought the the guys did a really great job with that. So it's still my go-to mail app.
0: Yeah, I, I loved Sparrow, but I stopped using it when it got bought just because I felt that it was going to go away. Um, so I thought I I'd, I'd mm-hmm. thought I needed to to get myself away from it. Um, but right. it's not gone away at all. But now I've got my eye on um, that new app, Mailbox, which will be out um, shortly. Which it just looks like um, like it's going to have some interesting features that, that I'm looking forward to trying out.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really does. I haven't had a chance to try it yet, uh, but hopefully, I will soon. But it's definitely a uh, looks interesting, a different. It, it kind of takes that whole Sparrow thing, but one step further in that it doesn't even pretend to have regular email conventions. You know, where Sparrow kind of pull the organizational features in, but put them inside that framework of email conventions like forwarding and, and um, replying and things like that. But uh, Mailbox looks like it takes one step further and just does away with the email conventions altogether. So you're not doing away with email. You're doing away with the framework around it. So it's sort of like taking a, an API of a, of a service and building a different framework to present that API to, to the public. And I think that's kind of a unique concept.
0: Do you run lots of betas like on a daily basis? Do do, do you run them on your on your like uh, personal phone? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, um, I, I don't think it's a breach of any sort of secret to say that I do run the beta of Tweetbot. So I have, like the latest beta of Tweetbot on my phone, um, and then I run. Maybe half a dozen to a dozen different betas uh, with sort of irregularity at any point on my phone, uh, it just depends on how close they are to launch As I it definitely um, it's not like aI welcome all betas" thing because I 'm going to be honest, my time is limited you know mm-hmm. i don't have a lot of time to spare because I am very, very busy, so I don't want people to take up a beta slot for me if I you know feel that i can't I can't try it at all pre pre pre-launch. Um, but sometimes I do get invited to things or people want me to check things out. And, you know, I'll definitely say yes if I feel it's interesting. So I I think my test flight list for the iPhone five, which is this device could not all apps, just ones that are on this device that that can be installed on this device or it's about 20 apps, I guess Mm -hmm. from a variety of different developers. Um, not all being used right now you know but um definitely kind of just keeping an eye on them and it's it's a rotating list obviously that you know as apps get closer to launch you know i'll i'll take a closer look at them because sometimes when I, i get started on a beta program it's very early in the beta and so maybe it's you know very nebulous like i've been running some betas of apps for six months you know right and kind of watching them as they evolve and um it kind of gives me a better understanding of the thought process sometimes, uh, but sometimes it's, I'm very late to a beta, you know, a couple of days before it launches, so I can, you know, get a run up to my to my review or or to you know to just to look at it. And so it, it's a different different experience, obviously, when you're been looking at it for a long time versus looking at it very shortly. But I do like uh, running beta apps simply because I think it keeps me just a step ahead of the trends that I'm seeing in the app store. And so when I write about trends like. Um, you know, more advanced touch interfaces being being used or being promoted, or um, you know, different sensors being used more. Uh, it's uh, I definitely am writing from a perspective where I see what's coming, yeah. And that's helpful. You know, having a, a few beta apps on hand from respected developers, people that I know are are good at what they do, or new developers who are you know fresh to the app store but doing something very interesting. It helps me kind of deliver a little bit more perspective on on what what i'm saying because i i am looking at things that are coming not just things that are you know um and it's it's definitely a nice nice thing to have especially when it comes to new releases of iOS because apple always likes developers and i don't know why more developers don't know this but smart smart speakers who are developers uh, will will say this often but um, Apple really likes developers to use the newest features that they introduce because they're introducing those features for a reason, you know? Yeah. So, one of the easiest ways to get featured by Apple or to get, you know, a, a hand up or a leg up or attention from them is to utilize brand new features that they just introduced in the latest version of iOS. So, yeah. with iOS 6, you know, they introduce. You know the new maps. If you're using the maps in your app in a clever way, well, why wouldn't they feature that? You know, or with iOS five, if you're um, you know integrating things like you know newsstand, well, or you know notification center or whatever the case may be in a clever way then why wouldn't apple promote that you know they're you're taking something that they just built they spent a lot of time building it and testing it and and releasing it and you're integrating into your app in a clever way so they're going to feature that they're going to be happy with that and so sometimes i'll see like new features of ios coming like say passbook right yeah. and you know you're working with betas of apps that that are featuring passbook, using Passbook in clever ways or interesting ways. And you see the trend, like are developers adopting this? Are the smart developers, the developers who know how the App Store works and how Apple works and you know what people are interested in and, and how the iPhone works in an intimate level, you know, are they adopting this feature? If they're not, something's up. And if they are, then that's that's good. And how are they doing it? And, you know, so that's it helps me keep a pulse on that too.
0: Cool. Awesome, very awesome. One last quick thing before before I let you go. You mentioned earlier that um, you used to read comic books as a kid. Is this something that you still indulge in?
1: I do. I read them on the iPad now. Um, I have, I think, like six long block long boxes in my basement um, with comics. Um, you know, stuff for like Wolverine and Spider Man, the classics, and you know yeah. some newer stuff too, and like some you know. Um, uh, you know things like um lone wolf and cub and blueberry and just you know kind of more indie stuff and then um you know kind of a variety of things that i've always been interested in but now i read them on the ipad and uh it's a little easier Uh, i can read you know large chunks of series at a time Mm -hmm. um using uh i think uh what is a comic zeal is what is my favorite reader at the moment yeah i use uh
0: comiXology i just buy them all on there and uh it's great. Gotcha. Love it. love it. Which means I don't have to even yeah, leave a yeah.
1: house. Right. And Comixology is uh, what powers like the DC and Marvel apps too, I believe.
0: Yeah, yeah. They have their own apps, so you can buy them all in the, in the Comixology store. Like the, just the one cool. app that they have. It's just something that I mentioned. It's a little passion of mine, so I, I like to know there's more of us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean I grew up you know, uh, reading comic books and you know having a, a small collection of my own and doing that. And uh, you know, I – spent many an hour in stores uh you know going through back catalogs to fill in my collection and um you know i i had a uh, for a long period of time i had a <clears throat> a standard pull list at my local comic shop you know and yeah. they would pull them for me and i would go in and um, pick them up every week and so on and so forth so yeah definitely a big comic book guy
0: awesome Well, Mr. Panzerino, thank you so much um, for taking the time out to join me today. Why don't you tell um, our lovely listeners where they can go to find out more about you and and the stuff that you do online?
1: Um, The next web (laughs) is probably the easiest (laughs) one. That's usually where I hang out, so that's probably the easiest way to find me or on Twitter at Panzer or um, perhaps at Robot Tuxedo every once in a while.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, thanks thanks again for joining me. Um, and you can find me on Twitter and at .net. I am iMike. I M Y K E. Next week we're going to have a special episode. You've heard us spoke. You must have heard me speak a few times um, earlier in the month and, and and last month too about our annual awards show on Seventy. I suppose called the Golden Headphone Awards, um, where we get all of the hosts together on one episode um, and we hand out awards for like best episode of the year and things like that, well, that's going to be coming your way um, next week during the Christmas break. So I very much hope that you enjoy that. And also to everybody who celebrates it, I hope you have a very Merry Christmas uh, from everyone at 70 decibels or just a happy holiday season, if if that is your bag. So yes, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.